If you have been coming for the past few weeks, you'll have noticed that we are going through our strategy as a church, and we've been using this phrase, aru, meaning to shift, change, and transform. The vision of the church is the same. We are a church that's making whole life disciples, sharing the whole of the gospel with the whole of society through churches of grace. And we've been looking at our strategy in three different strands. The first of which is transforming lives, the second is transforming society, and the third is deepening our influence. And I'm going to be looking at transforming society today. And it's worth saying that P's and G's as a church have only been here since August, but seeing all the stuff that we do, we actually engage in transformed society in a great way. The work and the ministry that we do is absolutely incredible. Courses, space for uh, improvement and for more things. But we are a church who set about transforming society. It's incredible to be at B's and T's on a Thursday, baby and toddlers. My wife and I have probably one or two or three uh, couples who are from the church. The rest are just from the community. There's probably around 100 mums uh, and parents that are there at each session, just really thriving. Our work that we do with soul food, Yesterday, there was 110 guests, so Libby mentioned, but people who are from the homeless community or on the fringes just come in, eating together. It's just an incredible thing, and P's and G's do this incredibly well. And there's so much more that we can and we will do and achieve in God. But we can't talk about transforming society unless we are open to the reality and the possibility of God transforming us. See, we talk a lot about revival, and wouldn't it be great if revival happened, if revival kicked off and, and it all happened, but we know that revival has to start in our hearts. We have to be in a position where we say, God, I, I'm willing for you to transform me. I want you to deconstruct my life and put me back together. I want you to come and transform the innermost being of me, my inner man. I'm willing, I'm open, I'm up for that. It's incredible being part of PSGs because you get to talk to people and hear their stories. And just this week, I spoke to a lady who said, you know, for years I hated myself, hated myself. Yet God's done a transformative work in her life so much that she is unrecognizable. Could it be that in five years' time, you look spiritually different from what you do now? Like people wouldn't even recognize you. That the work that God has begun in you, and we're constantly being transformed, Scripture says. Paul is constantly, he's saying we are constantly being transformed into his likeness. Could it be that in five years' time you look completely different spiritually? Like where you are theologically or where you are in your understanding of God or your identity in him is completely different. Let's be open to the fact that God is at work. He's renewing all things. He's transforming society. He's transforming the world. And he's doing it in and through us as well, in our heart. We're part of it. It's not something we do to people. It's something we're part of. We step into and we live out. That's my rant. I'm going to look back at my notes. Here we go. So we've been looking at transforming society, and we've been focusing on three areas that we can transform society. Just to focus, um, first of which is developing soul food. Spoke about it earlier, just uh, the homeless community and how we can develop that and uh, allow, that, allow that to flourish. The second is, wouldn't it be awesome to explore what it would look like to have a wholeness center? A place where people can come and thrive and get advice and prayer and counsel and advice. Just be an amazing opportunity to have that. And the third is caring for creation. 
since we put out the sort of request of people to come back and say, hey, what ideas do you have for, uh, in these areas? Flo, bless her, who's the intern with Social Transformation, she's had around 30 emails from people in the congregation. And the brilliant thing about that is it hasn't been, oh, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? It's been like, hey, could I do this? Hey, wouldn't it be great? Would you, would you be up for me doing this? So 30 people actually that want to do something and step into transforming society. It's really amazing. And do keep on uh, sending emails in and telling us some of your ideas that God's put in your heart because it'd be great to see that. Let's look at uh, the text that we um, have just looked at, Monica's just read. Verse 15 says this. All of us then who are mature, and Paul's talking about being spiritual mature. He's not talking about the elderly people in the congregation. Those who are spiritually mature should take such view on things. And if you, on some point, should think differently that uh, to God would make that clear to you. He's basically saying, look, this is what God is doing. This is what God is saying, I believe. And, and I believe that he's going to reveal it to you. And if you're not there yet in your thinking, if you're not there yet in how you're living it out, I, I'm, I'm cool with that. That's fine. God's going to do this. God's got it. it. It's in hand. He's saying those who are spiritually mature, i.e. those who align their lives with Jesus, his teaching, his grace, his mercy, and the cross, think about these things. Verse 16, he says, only... Let us live up to what we've already attained. Let us live up to what we have already attained. Paul is encouraging the people there in the church in Philippi. He's saying, keep going in your faith. He's saying, live up to who you are in Christ. And he's challenging them to see their identity in Christ. How God's made them, who God's made them to be, who they are in Jesus. He's saying, guys, just get it. Get your identity and live it out. When I was a teenager, I was brought up going to Soul Survivor and a new wine and, and things like that. And I remember being at Soul Survivor this one year, and there was hundreds, if not thousands, of teenagers there. And a guy called Mike Pilavachi was uh, doing the talk. And at the end of the talk, he just said, let's all stand. And he said, right, we're just going to wait on the Spirit. And I was like, okay, well, how, that's great. How, how long do we wait? And he's like, that's fine, just, just wait, let's just wait, there's no rush. And everyone's kind of standing there and it's silent. And I was like, well, this is awkward. And he's like, don't worry, just wait. The Spirit of God's coming, he's coming. He's promised he'll come. The Spirit's here. And he began to just read what he felt God was doing. Now, he wasn't preempting anything. He wasn't manipulating anything. He wasn't saying, in a moment, you're going to do this. He was actually reading what was happening in the room. And surely enough, like waves of the sea, the waves of the Spirit began to just unfold in the place. And people began to sing out in praise. People began to shout out amazing things about God. People started to shake and cry and weep. People started to pray with each other. People started to maybe move or fall down and all sorts of different things as the massive creator God touched our frail bodies and our bodies sometimes react in a way that just can't fully contain the fullness of God. And it was incredible to watch as Mike was just saying, that's what's going on, that's what's going on, that's what's going on. Oh, amazing, absolutely amazing. The Spirit of God breaking out amongst the people. But Mike hasn't always been like that. Mike's not always been a, a guy that um, can, can kind of read and, and feel what God is saying. And he gets it wrong, and he, and he said he gets it wrong. But he hasn't always been at that place. In fact, there was one time where a friend had asked Mike to come and, and pray with some people. 
So he'd said to Mike, hey, what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to c- come back and, and um, we're going to invite people to come to the front and we're going to just pray over them and we're going to get a sense of what God might be saying to that person. He might not say anything, might not be right. We hold it lightly, but we humbly put it before them. Feel like God may be saying this, okay? And I want you to come and join me, Mike. So Mike said um, that he'd been praying for the rapture to come, so he didn't have to do it. He was like, oh, Jesus, if you could just come back and get me off. Like, I, I'm absolutely petrified. I can't do that. I don't want to do that, but I've kind of agreed to it. God, if you could just come back, that would be awesome. We all know that Jesus hasn't come back, so Mike had to do it. He turns up, and he's absolutely like petrified. And it comes to the point where... He invites Mike on the stage just to stand with him. He's like, Mike, you're going to do this with me. You know, you're shadowing me here. We're going to do it. And he invites First Lady to come up on the stage. Not, not the First Lady, but the lady to come up on the stage. And they were going to pray over this lady. And, and some people had, had prayed stuff. Mike was with another guy. Uh, and this guy says to Mike, Mike, do you have anything for this lady? Have you got anything that, that God would like to say to this lady? And Mike's kind of panicking, his probably his palms are sweating, because the only word that Mike has in his head is skadula. And skadula is the Greek word, it's, it's almost in the New Testament, it's the closest thing to a swear word. So Mike's got this Greek swear word going round in his head, and he's like, well that's not God, that can't be God, why would I have the sinful man Fancy thinking that. That's just awful. So Mike bows out and he said, no, I don't think I do have anything for this lady. But then it gets interesting because the other guy that was up on the stage, he turns to Mike and he says, really, Mike? Because I just get this really overwhelming, strong sense that God's given you something to say to this lady, but you don't want to say it. And he's like, oh, Lord. So Mike's like, oh my goodness, like, I can't say skadula, I can't say that. Like, skadula is like such a bad word. It's basically, it's like human waste. It, it means human waste. But more than that, Mike, who's actually Greek, he knows exactly what it means. He knows the modern phrase for this, he knows the modern Greek for this. And it actually is specific, skadula is women's excrement. It's not just human's waste, it's, it's women's excrement. So here, Mike has this word in his head for a lady, which is basically human poo. So Mike's absolutely panicking, and he's, Lord, Lord, what do I do? So he takes it to God, and he says, God, okay, that's probably not of you. If it is of you, what are you saying? So first he had the revelation, now comes the translation. So he's saying, God, if that's the revelation, what's the translation to this? And he waits, and he just felt God say, tell her, she is not a skadula. She's not a skadula. Tell this lady that she's precious, that she's loved, that she's valued, that she's a princess, that she has a royal identity. Tell this lady that she's not a skadula. So Mike says, I could be wrong, um, and I'm really sorry, but I get the word skadula. And it's a Greek word, and it means this, but I feel like God may be saying, you're not a skadula. And then he kind of steps back, and she falls apart. Like she breaks down, she's sobbing, she's shaking, she's weeping. He's like, right, I'm out, I'm done, sorry about that, really sorry, I'm going to leave. But then she begins to explain, and she says, you know, you would never know this. You'd never know this. But in my previous marriage, I was married to a Greek man, 
And the Greek man never called me by my first name. From the moment we were married, he never called me Mary. He called me his little skadula. So when he would go to parties, he would bring his wife along and he would say, hey guys, look, this is skadula. This is my little piece of... When he would have friends over his house, he would say, hey skadula, go and get me a cup of tea. Hey skadula, make my friends a coffee. Hey skadula, why haven't you cleaned the kitchen? This was what he labeled her for years. Obviously, the marriage broke down. She got out of it. She escaped. And she's now married to a pastor. She's living a totally different narrative. But what happened was, in that moment, Mike was able to pray for her and others were and reorder who she saw herself to be. He was able to pray and God was beginning to heal her and restore her and transform her and just realign how she saw herself, how she believed God saw her and people saw her, realigned it. She was open for God to transform her. Hey, it might be that for some of us, We've believed stuff for years about ourselves. I'm so stupid. I always do that. I I never get that right, do I? People always say that about me. I'm unlikable. I'm unlovable. I'll never do this. I'll never do that. And we speak this over ourselves, but we also live into it. It becomes a habit and it becomes a lifestyle. And it becomes a narrative that we actually live out. Thank God for things like freedom in Christ. Thank the Lord for things like prayer ministry. Thank the Lord for things like connect groups where we can actually help step into realigning how we see each other in God, in Christ, our identity. Libby, amazing poem that you read out at the beginning. So of God. So I feel what God is saying today, that we're precious in his sight. That yes, we make mistakes, but it's not who we are. We are who God says we are. Maybe for some of us, like we need to break some stuff off. Stuff that we've carried for so long. Maybe God just needs to break it today. And he's just like, that's not who you are. That's not how you should live. I've got a different script for your life. I've got something different for you. You need to step into that. You need to live that out. Paul's saying to the church in Philippi, live up to what you've already attained. He's saying, guys, come on, look at who you are in Jesus. Look at what Jesus has done for you. Live up to that reality. Live up to the fact that you are ambassadors. You're citizens of heaven. Grasp it, get hold of it, and live it out. He's pleading the church in Philippi to live up to, to step into this reality There's this uh, illustration that I once heard. It's a, it's a little story. And it's a story of an eagle's egg that got hatched in a chicken coop. So there's this eagle's egg that's there, and the hens are there, and, sitting there, and, and the, the uh, egg hatches and so on. And this eagle's born, but it's a monk's chicken. And this eagle actually constantly has its head down. It's constantly eating down and just never looking up, never experiencing the wind in his wings, but just eating the seeds from the ground. One day, an eagle flies down and comes down, and he sees the, the chick, the baby eagle, amongst the chicken. And he says to this chick, hey, come and get on my wings. Come and jump up on my wings. 
And this baby is like, no way. We don't do that. I don't fly. This is where I am. This is who I am. And he's like, no, no, come with me. Come with me. And the story goes, the eagle picks the chick on its back and the eagle soars to different heights. And suddenly the perspective is changed. Suddenly the baby eagle's like, oh, this is it. I get it. I see things differently now. I see who I am. It's a little illustration, but how often do we need to be taken to a different perspective, to be taken to a heavenly perspective and actually not get caught up in a narrative that kind of constrains us and holds us down? God wants us to thrive. He wants us to flourish. He wants to lift us to a point and a perspective that says, look, this is who you are. Look at who you are. He wants to lift us to a greater height, a higher perspective. Paul here in his letter He's challenging these guys to take their their view and their perspective higher, to look at who they are in God. Paul's asking them as well, as we'll look in the text in a moment, to call stuff out from each other. So he's saying, look at the people around you who follow the stuff. Stick around them, learn from them, thrive from them. Bible says, iron sharpens iron, mankind sharpens mankind. Be around the people who believe the same things, who are going to champion you, who are going to love you, who are going to call the best out of you and remind you of your identity. One of my tattoos that I have on my arm is a reminder for me, and it's this Maori word, mana. Katie and I spent some time uh, in New Zealand. And mana is a really interesting thought and phrase and understanding. Basically, the Maori people believe that everybody has mana. Everybody has a presence and an essence of who you are. And you can't earn it. You can't buy it. It's just who you are. It's who you've been made to be. But beyond that, and this is what I think is great, the Maori community, they call people's mana out from them. So if you meet a Maori person, they recognize your manner. They begin to affirm it. So they say, if it was Josh, Josh Gilbert, they say, Josh, you're an amazing guy. Like, you don't understand fully who you are in God. You're gifted. You love people. You love your friends. Josh, you're passionate. Josh, I see your heart. You're like a snowflake in the Lord's hand. You're unique. You're special. Josh, you're an amazing husband. You're an amazing friend. Josh, you're a great leader. They would call the manner out of a person, and they would name it. And they would encourage it, and it would fuel that person, but it would realign, it would remind their identity of who they are. We all need that, don't we? We need to be reminded who we are. I'm preaching through the text today, so we're going to verse 17, the next verse. Paul says, join together in following my example. Brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. That's why connect groups are important. That's why, that's why getting involved as a connect group and serving and transforming society, connect and collect, so collecting food for food banks, stuff like that, all that's important. We do it in community. Paul's saying, keep your eyes on those who live out as, you sh- as they should. Keep your eyes on them, watch them, learn from them, encourage, call out the manner, if you like, from people. When I was at Bible college, I, I loved all the lectures and they were great, but I, if I'm being honest, I learned more in my community group. In, in the group of students that process the theology and actually say, well, what does that actually mean? In my day-to-day, what does that actually mean? And I learned in these community groups, Paul's saying, keep your eyes on those who are following uh, Jesus and sharpen each other, encourage each other. Verse 18 says this, For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, 
Many live as enemies of the cross. The Apostle Paul has been totally transformed by Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. And he's passionate about people following him. But he's also heartbroken for those who have wandered off. I'm not advocating tattoos, it feels like I'm talking about tattoos, but my other tattoo that I have on my other arm is this image of the return and enter key. So it's a reminder for me, it's a prayer reminder for me, because I'm not very good at this, but it's a reminder for me to pray for all my friends that used to have a faith and they don't have a faith anymore. And I pray for them when I see it, that they would return and enter into all that God has for them. People who have now become enemies of the cross. Paul's saying, I'm heartbroken for those that used to follow Jesus in this way, but they've somehow become enemies of the cross. It's strong language, isn't it? It's a strong image to say that they're an enemy of the cross. He's saying that their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. If you read around this text, and scholars believe that this phrase, their God is their stomach, is a reference to them eating what is clean and unclean. So basically, they've got fixated on looking at this, uh, this ritual, this law, this thing where they have to eat the right thing to be made right with God. So it's right, I don't touch that food because that's unclean food. I eat this food because it's clean. So basically, Paul's saying, guys, you've, lost the, you've missed it. You've lost the plot here. Like you've, you've fixated on your stomach, on what you eat and what you don't eat to make yourself right with God. The next reference, he says that uh, their glory is in their shame. Shame is connected to nakedness. Nakedness is connected to circumcision. And basically, Paul's saying, yes, you can eat the right foods. Yes, you can be circumcised, but it's not enough. Like, you can follow all the, the traditions. You can go to church on Sunday. You can sing the songs. You can give to the church. You can do all this stuff, but that doesn't earn love with God. Like, that's not what makes you in with God. It's about the cross, and these guys at that time were focusing on, on these things, these rituals, eating the right stuff, being circumcised, doing the, the religious stuff, and basically saying, well, we've got this, we don't need the cross. Like the, the cross is pointless, because if I do this, I'm made right with God. We don't need the cross. Paul's actually saying they've become enemies of the cross. Uh, it, so often, you know, you can, myself included, we, we get caught up in the stuff that we think's religious and that's good, and that's pleasing, and that looks good, and so on. And we can, we can almost try and earn God's love. And Paul's saying, forget that. Like, we all need the cross. We all mess up. We need the cross of Christ. We need his forgiveness. We need his grace. And these things don't save us. Only Jesus saves us. Paul did both them things and them religious things. But he's saying he still needs the cross. Verse 19 then, and the latter part of it, he says, Their mind is set on earthly things. The mind is set on earthly things. Now, don't get me wrong. The Apostle Paul isn't saying that by them looking at what's going on in the world is wrong. I think it would be wrong to actually just look at Jesus and just be aware of Jesus and just pray to Jesus and to God all the time and actually ignore all the people that are around you. Like, to love God and not your neighbor doesn't make sense. Like, he's saying to them, you know, they've got their minds fixated on the earthly things. So basically, it's that perspective. It's like they're not up to where they should be in seeing the earth as God sees it. He's saying, basically, view the world through God's eyes. View the world through God's eyes, a place that's being transformed. 
a place that's in transition, a place that's going to be renewed. That's why we do things like the Transforming Society. That's why we care for creation. Because we believe that when we see Jesus and he gives us a heart for his world, we've got to engage in it, but we've got to see it as God sees it and not fall into the trap of looking at the things that people think are important in life. Paul's reminding them again that they live as citizens of heaven. Verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Whilst on earth, yes, we live on earth, but we are a colony of heaven on earth. Like we demonstrate heaven on earth. We bring heaven to earth in how we act, how we pray, how we love, how we serve, how we work, how we live. We bring heaven to earth. We're citizens of heaven. When I was at a conference just outside of Edinburgh uh, not so long ago, I remember during the worship there was, um, there was crowns placed out of the front. And I was like, well, that's a bit weird. And then I remember just thinking, well, why is there crowns in the conference center? Like, what, why are we worshiping? What, what's the deal with the crowns? And during the worship, when we were singing to King Jesus, all hail King Jesus, we were singing about, I'm loved, I'm chosen, I am who you say I am. People would come up, and they'd take a crown, and they'd put this crown on their head, and they'd just worship. And I'm like, that looks a bit weird. And I was kind of going on, all this wrestling inside of me, like, well, I'm not going to do that. Like, that's just strange. And then I kind of watched people, but then I just felt this nudge. It's like, you, you can't do that, Paul, because you don't believe that you're royalty. You don't believe that actually you're a child of the king. You don't believe that you are a royal priesthood. That as, as Psalm 8 says, you're a little lower than the gods. And for a boy that was never affirmed by his father, that's a struggle to believe, to step into. And here I am in tears walking to the front during worship, picking up a crown, placing it on my head, and just worshiping King Jesus. And this amazing thing happened as I... As I sort of stood there worshiping with this crown on my head that stuff was being reordered. Stuff was being transformed in my heart, in my life, in my brain, in my thinking, in my living, in my identity. I'm a child of the king. I'm a child of the king. And I felt like God was saying, Paul, I'm going to place the crown on your head and I'm going to eyeball you and I'm going to look you in the eyes and I'm going to say, I see you, I know you, I like you, I love you. Now go and change the world. And I believe that's what God's saying to us tonight, today and tonight. I believe that he's saying, look, I like you. I like you. I love you. You're royalty. Now go and change the world. Go and transform society in the most authentic, true-to-yourself, non-freaky way possible. Go and do it. Go and do it. You have everything you need to be a king and a queen, to bring heaven's rule to earth, to your workplaces, to your friends, to your streets, to your neighbors. Go and be kings and queens. The strategy is simple. It's basically saying, allow God to transform you. Because transformed people transform the world. I'm still a work in progress. My life is like a construction site at times. And I feel like God's propping me up. But I'm aware that he's transforming me, taking my brokenness and my pain. And I've lost count the amount of people I've prayed for who's lost a dad or a mum 
even a week after I lost my dad, when my dad died, God's transforming me and using me to transform others' lives because he's constantly doing that in his world. He's constantly doing that in our lives. The latter part of the text that we just read says this. We eagerly await our Savior, Lord Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform your lowly bodies so that he will be, we will be like his glorious body. He's basically saying, look, God's already started this transformation thing. He's making all things new. But it starts in us as well. It starts in our heart. We are being transformed into his likeness now. And it's going to continue until Jesus returns.